Hello and welcome to STAMP, the St. Anne's College MCR podcast. Our hope is to make world-class research conducted by graduates at St. Anne's College, Oxford, accessible to the everyday listener who may not have prior knowledge of a subject, but who is nonetheless curious to find out more. My name is Yi Shu, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of St. Anne's Academic Review, the college's interdisciplinary peer-reviewed journal edited by graduates. You are listening to Fresh Academic Voices, a special podcast series featuring five of the nine contributors to the 11th volume of STAR, due for publication this September. In our third episode, we dive into the wonders of the human brain with Conrado Airoa Solans, who studies the nature of human emotions. Conrado is completing his master's in psychological research, and in his paper for STAR, he inquires specifically, what are emotions? Are they ingrained in the brain's architecture, or are emotions socially constructed phenomena? Conrado will present the two schools of thought, a classical biological perspective versus the social constructionist view, and he draws evidence from a legion case study and brain scans to explain the nature of what human beings feel. Born and raised in urban Madrid, Conrado has lived in rural northern California and snowy suburban Minnesota. He holds a BA in psychology from the College of St. Scholastica in Duluth, and he has worked as a research assistant at the universities of Yale, Stanford and Michigan. Beyond academia, Conrado enjoys spending time in the great outdoors, trekking the backcountry and hidden lands. I'll be speaking with Conrado from his home city, Madrid, where he is currently finishing his thesis for his master's degree. Welcome, Conrado. Thank you so much for joining us here on Stamp. How is life treating you in Spain? Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Life in Spain has been pretty good. Madrid uh, certainly doesn't have Oxford's libraries, but it does have a lot of sunshine and great Mediterranean food. It's been a nice change of scenery. Now, your academic field is psychology. Your master's at Oxford was in psychological research. Would you call yourself a psychologist or a researcher, or would you define yourself otherwise? I guess the truth is that I don't really see them as mutually exclusive. At least in Spain, uh, my home country, as you mentioned, being a psychologist pretty much exclusively entails being a clinical therapist. But I see psychology and research as two different categories, really. Psychology is a subject that deals with the issues of the mind, and research is the practice of using science to expand our knowledge in a particular subject. So as someone who's interested in the mechanisms that govern human behavior, I guess for now, while I continue to do my training as a graduate student, I would like to call myself a psychology researcher and trainer. And what does your day-to-day research involve? Do you conduct brain scans and experiments and combine this with literature reviews? My typical working day really depends on the stage of research I'm currently in. So at the beginning of a research project, there's usually a lot of reading and thinking involved in identifying the idea that will best help us advance our knowledge in emotion regulation or emotion and designing a research paradigm that will be able to test this idea. But once these steps are over, most of my day is usually taken over by a lot of programming. First, programming to build the experiment. So for example, for my thesis here at Oxford, I spent over a month learning how to code in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript to build a custom task for my experiment, or a couple custom tasks. And then, of course, programming to run all the statistical analyses, which often requires me to do a bit of reading as well. But then finally, when the data is collecting, there's obviously a lot of writing. Then again, I'm usually working on more than one project at a time. So sometimes my day is a good mix of all of these things, really. So you spent the last year on your master's studying the nature of human emotions and emotion regulation in particular. 
Could you explain in simple terms what you mean by emotion regulation? Emotion regulation simply refers to the process by which we engage in any kind of behavior that aims to change how we feel. And there's strong evidence that our emotional responses are based on how we perceive or appraise an event. So a very effective emotion regulation strategy simply consists on changing our interpretation of that event. So for example, if you feel upset because someone bumped your shoulder on the street, you can remind yourself that you're in a very busy street and that person probably didn't mean to bump you on the shoulder. And research shows that this kind of reframing helps us feel better about the event that is causing the negative emotion. There are mechanisms in our brain that mediate what happens around us and then determine how we feel. Correct. So our emotions are a response to events that are happening out in the world and how they influence us. And if we change the interpretation that we have about how this event is influencing us, then it should change the emotional response that we have to that event. And that whole process of modulating the trajectory of that emotion is what we know as emotion regulation. What first sparked your interest in this topic? Did you discover it as an undergraduate student or while you were working? Yeah, well, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, I think my parents' respective interests played a role in setting up the framework for me to become interested in emotion regulation. But from my undergraduate perspective, when I was discovering my interests, I first became interested in this topic after reading Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, which is one of the more popular Stoic readings. And like most people, I used to think that Stoicism was an ideology that promoted the suppression and internalization of emotions, but I quickly found out that this was actually very poor and superficial characterization of Stoicism. And instead, the, the great Stoics, such as Epictetus, who was a liberated slave, or Marcus Aurelius, who was one of the last uh, good five emperors, Roman emperors, really stressed the importance of changing the way we think about events that are not within our volitional sphere of control, such that we only concern ourselves with acting upon the things that we can change. I found this was a very empowering way of thinking that helped me be much more deliberate about my personal and academic goals. So I became interested in investigating how we can help people change the way they think about negative events and how they can manage the drives that might prevent them from doing so, such as emotions. Oh, that's fascinating. And you mentioned that your parents established a framework that has enabled you to go on to do these studies. Do you come from a family of psychologists or scientists? Yeah, I suppose you could say so, at least in part. My mother is a clinical psychologist and my father studied philosophy during his undergrad. As a psychologist, my mother probably instilled in me a strong appreciation for the role of emotions in her daily life. And the interest in philosophy that really came down to me from my father developed into a particular affinity for stoicism out of a combination with that interest in emotions that came from my mother, most likely. For St. Anne's Academic Review, uh, you have written a paper on a specific aspect of your research. It's a paper essentially on two competing ideas about the nature of human emotions, the classical biological perspective and the social constructionist view which all sounds rather abstract to someone who doesn't study psychology every day, but they probably want to know what on earth is going on inside our brains emotionally. Could you tell us about these two schools of thought? In simple terms, the classical view of emotion says that all of our emotional experiences derive from a set of five basic emotions, so fear, sadness, anger, disgust, and happiness, and that these basic emotions have specific biological structures within the brain. 
However, researchers have struggled to find these architectures in the brain, so other researchers, who are now known as social constructionists, have proposed that perhaps emotions do not have those distinct biological underpinnings that were first hypothesized, and that instead emotions are just some kind of mental category that we create through experience, and that the biological differences we do see between different emotions such as sadness and fear can be better described through broad dimensions of affect such as good versus bad and I am paralyzed by helplessness so I will shut down my body versus I need to run away so I need to start pumping blood through my veins. Today, is one theory more popular or convincing than the other based on evidence? That could be a charged question depending on who you ask, but I guess I'd break it down into this. From what I have gathered, there's more consensus than disagreement within the neuroscientific community that emotions can be distinguished in the brain. But some researchers do make a very compelling theoretical or even philosophical argument that emotions are ontologically similar, even though we perceive them as different. And thus, their differences may lie solely on our perception of them and not their true nature. But either way, I think that different basic emotions feel different to the agent and carry different meanings that are more or less generalizable to a lot of people, which seems to be the case, I think that there is merit to studying them independently. Now, psychologists in the past have argued that the brain had specific locations for processing each emotion, and that these regions are shared by all humans. Do modern psychologists still believe this to be true, or has present-day thinking moved away from this idea? Um, well, I think that during neuroscience's dark ages, some people believed the measuring the bumps on the skull could predict mental traits and of course now we have we know this to be false but we do find that different brain regions are involved in different types of functions so for example the part of our brain that sits on top of our eyeballs is known to be heavily involved in higher level thinking and decision making but not visual processing while the part of our brain that sits on the very back of our head is heavily involved in visual processing but not higher level cognition. And similarly, neuropsychologists have identified that some brain regions are more heavily associated with some aspects of emotions than others, but no emotion is confined to a single brain region, as some early psychologists tried to hypothesize. And instead, it seems that many different subcortical structures are involved in this, with the same emotions. And now this has led neuropsychologists to wonder whether specific emotions lie within specific interactions in the brain. So for example, the amygdala, which is a region in the limbic system that was previously believed to be associated only with fear, seems to contribute to other negative emotions such as disgust and even more positive emotions. So rather than finding that individual neural structures are associated with individual emotions, we're finding that individual structures fulfill broad functions that are part of some emotions more than others. So going back to the example of the amygdala, it seems that its function is better described as an alerting system for both positive and negative rewards, which is involved in emotions like fear or happiness, but less so with sadness, which is more characterized by experiencing dampened rewards. So therefore, scientists now believe that it may be possible to identify individual emotions based on the unique combination of neural structures that they're associated with. I see, I see. And going back to the two schools of thought, the classical view and the social constructivist view, 
Are these the two main modes of explaining what emotions are, or are there other ways in which psychologists have been defining emotions? Uh, there's there's a whole spectrum of, of theories attempting to capture the nature of emotions, but this is probably the most antagonistic pair, so to speak. In between, there are a few theories that suggest that emotions are biologically different, but rely fully on appraisals, and that emotions are psychological constructs that are different from other mental constructs, but um, not a thing by themselves, so to speak. And I personally find that my view aligns best with the modal model of emotion, which defends that there are unique interactions between our goals and the environment that drive our attention and, and give rise to coordinated but flexible emotional responses. However, there's still much research to be done before the field of emotion can really converge into one overarching theory of emotion. You say that social constructionists propose the view that emotions should be viewed as cognitive concepts such as money and that they are predictive concepts that regulate our behavior in advance of us doing something. Can you explain what's meant by this? I think the author who first suggested that emotions were akin to cognitive concepts such as money meant this as an illustrative example but it really has become quite a sticking point in her theory. I think that what she was trying to convey is that emotions do not have specific neural substrates, um, and what we recognize in individual emotions could simply be mental concepts that we learn through experience. And in that context, they could be assimilated to money. We learn that with the boot comes the kick, and we see when we see the boot, we enter a mental state that, alongside more general forms of affect, help us to predict these outcomes and react adaptively. However, many researchers take issue with this because emotional concepts are not the same as emotional states. Or in other words, us having these mental concepts does not preclude us from experiencing physiological states that are distinct. And at the core, this is really just a debate about whether emotions do have specific neurological underpinnings. What would you say differentiates emotion from reflexes, automatic reflexes, and other actions that originate from the human will, like volitional behavior? Well, emotions give us an, an intermediate degree of flexibility between reflexes and volitional actions. So when, when a doctor taps on your tendon below your knee during a check with one of those reflex hammers, and your leg kicks out whether you want it or not, and this is what we know as a reflex. It is essentially ingrained in the more primal parts of our brain, and we have little to no control over whether we enact them or not. And on the other side of things, we have volitional behavior. So if, if you're sitting at your desk right now, you can probably choose to move your leg freely, but you can also choose not to. And there is a fascinating intersection between volitional behavior and agency, so whether you feel like you have control over your volitional behavior, but that probably falls beyond the, the, the scope of this question. But emotions um, fall right in between reflexes and volitional behavior. So theorists in favor of the classical view of emotion propose that emotions evolved due to their utility in addressing recurring problems faced by our ancestors. So fear helped us run away from predators, for example. But regardless of whether you agree or disagree with that view, the fact is that emotions or affective states promote action tendencies that help us respond in an efficient and context-sensitive manner. So if you're afraid, you're much more likely to run away than if you're angry, and if you're sad, you're more likely to not run at all. But unlike reflexes, these, these states are not absolute. You can choose um, 
to try and stop yourself from running away if you're afraid and you can go for a jog if you're feeling sad. So in other words, emotion really create action tendencies but not reactions. They're sort of like instruments and tools that help us navigate through different events and situations. We have some control over them. Correct. Yeah, so it has the tendency of an impulse or of a reflex, but we can change them through volitional behavior. In the article, you mentioned the difficulties or inabilities of researchers in differentiating emotions, making distinctions between anger, fear, happiness, and so on. Uh, why is this the case, and could you give us some examples of these? Different emotions have been associated to the activation of some of the same brain regions, which creates quite a bit of overlap between the regions that are associated with each emotion. On a basic level, this makes it quite difficult to differentiate emotions just based on neuroimaging, because we see that many regions are being activated simultaneously for more than one emotion. But more importantly, it begs the question of why different emotions are activating these similar regions. And the answer seems to be that different brain regions contribute to different facets of each emotion, and that not all emotions make use of some of the same facets. And this distinction is important because it means that emotions are not housed within specific or a single brain regions, but arise from the interaction of many different regions. Only recently have people started to notice these interactions. And I guess the poor temporal resolution of a lot of neuroimaging technologies means that we haven't been able to test the fundamental prediction of this hypothesis, but technologies such as MEGs uh, or magnetoencephalography in full, which is quite a mouthful, are really promising because they can look at the deep parts of the brain in good spatial and temporal detail, and the couple studies that have looked at basic emotions in this manner have found that emotions can be identified through these unique interactions in both a temporal and spatial scale. But these results still need to be replicated. They're, they're very recent. We've touched upon neurological evidence, yet there are other ways to study emotions and draw hypotheses, such as leading case studies, of which you mentioned one about a woman who has a very severe skin condition. What happened to her and what have studies on her condition revealed about the way we experience or generate fear? This is a great question. So the woman is known in the neuroscientific community as SM, and she has an extremely rare genetic condition that predisposed her to have an excess of collagen, if that's how you pronounce that in English, which is really just a substance that is found in connective tissues. She has deposits of collagen in both her skin and her soft tissues. And for some reason, this disease is known to selectively create these deposits and therefore destroy both of the amygdala while living most of the brain relatively intact. So her condition um, has been really useful, or both her condition and her willingness to collaborate with scientists have been really useful in advancing our understanding in human fear and even emotion in general. And initially it was really believed that the amygdala was primarily engaged by fear, or solely engaged by fear, but later we found out that this activation was also associated with other emotions such as anger or disgust. And this contributed to the view that emotions did not have specific neural substrates. But the case of SM is particularly important in this whole debate because even though she know 
what fear is and she can tell you when people are experiencing fear and she is perfectly able to relate what it would feel to experience fear she cannot experience the physiological state associated with fear herself and this tells us two very important things the first being that emotion concepts and emotion states or the physiological states that are associated with emotions are two different things and second even though the emotions share neural structures with um, with other emotions, some emotions cannot be experienced within one of these structures, meaning that at their core, emotions seem to rely on different neural mechanisms. And this is critical information for the debate on the nature of emotions, because if each basic emotion cannot be experienced without um, different neural structures, this would entail that there would be enough biological differences between emotions to establish that they are ontologically distinct. What I found interesting reading that study was that as um, her skin reacted to high incidents that cause high arousal, as you say, like I think you mentioned some loud noises, but yet she didn't actually experience fear that you would normally experience. Totally right. Um, so usually the, the amygdala is involved in, in processing certain signals from the environment that help us learn through emotions that we would consider fear. And we do not see these kind of physiological responses or fear-based learning that we do see in other people. So whereas people will learn based on stimuli such as the one you described, so loud noises, she was, she was not able to learn in fear, from fear-inducing paradigms. So, to answer your research question, are emotions the fundamental reality of the brain's architecture? What would you say? Well, at this stage, I don't think we can make such a bold statement as emotions being the fundamental reality of the brain architecture. But I do think that there is enough evidence to indicate that individual emotions are probably underpinned by distinguishable neurological states. And I think that constructionists have succeeded in making a detailed account of how emotion concepts arise. But as a professor at Caltech recently put it, the same way that concepts of planets are not planets, concepts of emotions are not emotions per se. So as far as the in investigation of emotions is concerned, there are two critical facts to consider. The first is that neuroimaging studies suggest that there is a wide overlap in the subcortical regions that are associated with basic emotions. But research, uh, recent research indicates that different emotions might recruit these network, networks of regions under different activation patterns. And the second important fact to consider is that Lesion studies indicate that basic emotions such as fear or disgust rely on, on key regions. And so, for example, fear cannot be properly experienced without the amygdala, as the case of SM um, illustrates, and disgust cannot be properly experienced without the insula. However, fear can be experienced without the insula, and disgust can be experienced without the amygdala. So together, neuroscientific research seems to tell us that most subcortical regions play a role in other emotions, but they play an asymmetrical role in different emotions, such that different structures probably contribute different aspects to emotions, and some emotions cannot be properly experienced without those key aspects. Meaning that, based on these asymmetries and patterns, 
we might be able to identify individual emotions based on their neurological underpinnings. What more needs to be done to solidify your argument? It is a tricky question, because regardless of whether emotions are evolutionarily adapted states, the fact that basic emotions represent probably the most distinct combinations of their underlying more basic forms of affect means that um, if, they're, if they were not evolutionarily adapted states, we would still be inclined to believe that they were ontologically different just because they have different manifestations and we can categorize the different underpinnings. But in reality, we would just be identifying different degrees of the, the same basic dimensions, not qualitatively different states. But I think that lesion studies indicate that this might not be the case, because as we discussed, there are at least two emotions we cannot experience without specific brain regions, so fear with the amygdala and disgust with the insula, meaning that these regions are responsible for a function that is qualitatively unique for that emotion. And therefore, in a way, emotions are more than the sum of the basic dimensions of affect that comprise it, as they are defined by a specific aspect that does not have the same key importance in other emotions. However, this is really just a tentative uh, conclusion, and I think that before we can conclude that with confidence, we need to first find whether our ability to experience emotions other than fear and disgust is also dependent on the aspects afforded by a specific brain region. And second, on the neuroimaging front, we need um, more evidence confirming that emotions do exhibit unique patterns of activity and that these patterns are co consistent across studies. And I think that, as we mentioned earlier, technologies such as MEG are very promising in this arena. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, there already is one study that provided very promising evidence in this, in this area. But, but this still needs to be um, replicated, even though this, this first study that I'm talking about did find that different emotions exhibited unique temporal dynamics. So overall, there's still much research to be done, but uh, currently I think that there are enough indicators to believe that emotions probably are ingrained in the brain's architecture. Would you continue studying in this area at a PhD level? I think my primary area of focus concerns emotion regulation, and of course emotion generation is a key aspect of, of emotion regulation, but I think for me this was more of a vital exploration in how emotion ge generation occurs so that then I have a better understanding of how we can best regulate that emotion. Wonderful. Would you like to take up an academic post? Would you like to invest yourself solely in research? What are your possibilities now having done your master's? Eventually I would definitely like to take up an academic position but I think that's still pretty far in the future. For now I look forward mostly just to focusing on research uh, on, on a PhD level ideally. This fall I will be applying to PhD programs and hopefully that will go well and I'll start as a PhD trainee. Otherwise, I'll just continue to do research in collaboration with professors uh, until I, I do get accepted and then just continue down the path. Excellent. That sounds really exciting. How's the writing up for the master's thesis going? Have you finished? Uh, not yet. I am still finishing up the data analysis, but I do have some parts of the thesis already written up. So the introduction and the methodology are written up. I just need to finish the analysis, write it up, and then work on the discussion. 
Great. So wishing you all the best for that. How have you found the experience of writing for Star? And do you have any more publications in the mix aside from your thesis? Uh, writing for Star has been excellent, really. The editorial team has been very responsive and constructive, which is really all you can ask for. And as for other publications, besides my thesis, which I do plan to publish after I complete a second part of it, I am also looking forward to starting a couple of collaborations this October. Will you be in Spain? Are you going back to the States, returning to the UK? Though it's all a bit up in the air at the moment. Yes, it, it certainly is all a bit up in the air in the moment. Um, but I am going to be staying, or my home base is going to be Spain. Um, one of the projects I intend to start in October is going to be in collaboration with, with a friend in Germany. So maybe I, with a little bit of luck, I'll go there for a little bit. And then in February, I'm going to a conference in the States. So hopefully, if the COVID situation continues to improve, I'll be going there in person next February. Okay, fingers crossed that all works out. Thank you, Conrado. My mind is spiraling into itself after the conversation and I'll be second guessing every motion. I feel having edited your article and learned about your research. Thanks again for writing for STAR and also for joining us on STAMP. It's been fantastic working with you and good luck for the next chapter. We look forward to sharing your article with readers in September. Thank you very much. Conrado Airoa Solans, a master's candidate in psychological research, speaking about the nature of human emotions, where they come from and how they are produced in the brain. And if you enjoyed listening to Conrado's interview, do follow us for a fourth and penultimate episode in which we'll meet Dora Marcati, a medic and neuroscientist from Greece currently undertaking her master's in paediatrics. Dora and I will be talking about her paper on viruses, but nothing related to the virus in our daily headlines, you'll be glad to know. Dora is interested in certain viruses which can be used as vectors, or platforms, to treat genetic disorders. Viruses that infect cells with therapeutic products, either inside or outside the body, and which bear promise for the treatment of many neurological disorders that affect children. To find out more about the Fresh Academic Voices series, please visit stannesacademicreview.com, where you can listen to all the episodes we've released thus far. You can also dip into previous volumes of the journal, which date back over a decade to 2009. Thank you for listening to STAMP, the St. Anne's MSR podcast. Farewell, until next time.